Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, on Friday, March 27th, 2020, I launched a limited podcast series addressing how the COVID-19 pandemic is reframing healthcare in the U.S. In this limited series, I'm reaching out to interview bold healthcare leaders, entrepreneurs, and practitioners asking two questions. First, how is the COVID-19 pandemic immediately changing the way we're delivering healthcare, and how will COVID-19 reframe American healthcare for years to come? Our interview this week is with Sammy Inkinen, the founder and CEO of Verda Health. Sammy is uh, truly an amazing human being and entrepreneur. Uh, We've had the pleasure of working together for, I think it was five or six years in full transparency. I have served as a uh, formal advisor to Verta and still continue to advise Verta as well. Just wanted to share that with you. Sammy is one of my favorite people. He is such a role model. I have so much respect for him in, in so many ways we can't even begin to go into. Sammy, just want to say thank you for taking the time. I know you're super busy. How are you doing today? Well, Zev, thank you so much for having me here. And all things considered, I'm doing very well. So thank you for asking. Sammy, could you just give a little bit of a snapshot of yourself in terms of your entrepreneurial background and, and your interest in Verta and how you got into that? Yeah, absolutely. First, uh, born and raised in Finland, physicist by training, started my career in a nuclear power plant, which obviously completely disqualifies me to do anything in healthcare, if I may say. Uh, Came to America 2003 by way of Stanford Business School and then started a company called Trulia, which also is not in healthcare, a real estate marketplace, which subsequently went public 2012 and then merged with Zillow 2014. So, um, so I basically have sort of a science and technology background, and I've started a couple of companies also in, in addition to Trulia. And then my entry to healthcare happened around, I, I'd say my deep interest to healthcare happened around 2011, 2012, 2013. And the brief story of that is that as a world-class triathlete, I discovered that I was on my way to becoming type 2 diabetic, or specifically I was pre-diabetic, which to my logical physicist brain did not make any sense because a lean uh, person who exercises 10 plus hours a week shouldn't be on his way to becoming type 2 diabetic. So that sort of, uh, or that frustration opened up my eyes and I started reading research and meeting with a lot of scientists and clinicians asking questions, how is this possible? So long story short, it was that kind of a catalyst that led me to founding Verda 2014 with a group of scientists and clinicians. And we can talk about Verda in a second, but our mission is to reverse type 2 diabetes in 100 million people by 2025. Yeah. So let's jump into that. You said so many things, you just slipped them in there. So, you know, just casually like being a physicist and all that and being a world-class triathlete, really amazing. And so here you were lean exercise at the intensity that you were talking about uh, as a triathlete and, and, and one that's won uh, triathlons. 
And yet you're developing, you know, you're pre-diabetic and you're heading towards, as I recall you sharing with me, your doctor's telling you, you're kind of heading towards diabetes and should consider medications. And this makes no sense to you, right? It makes no sense to anyone. So you started to do some research. You met some uh, scientists through your research and you discovered something about the physiology and pathophysiology of diabetes that led you really to reframe, to use you know, my nomenclature, to reframe your thinking about, about diabetes, and then led you to put this company together that is sort of a combination of both a, a very, very different pathophysiologic approach to treating diabetes, as well as a very different approach uh, in terms of the technology, the application of technology, and, and the delivery of healthcare itself. And so could you just give a little bit of background in terms of the reorientation and then how you put Verta together and what that looks like? What does is, what is Verta look like? Yeah, absolutely. I guess from a physiological perspective, to try to make it very simple, I think most people still think that the path towards type 2 diabetes is mainly gaining weight, becoming obese, and then that obesity is a the or major contributor to developing type 2 diabetes. And obviously, I was an N equals 1 counterexample of that lean, reasonably high-performing endurance athlete who was becoming type 2 diabetic. So our view and the way we treat type 2 diabetes is that, in fact, it's a metabolic health condition called insulin resistance that then causes type 2 diabetes. And you can be lean, for example, if you exercise all the excess calories that you eat, you can be lean, but you can still be metabolically unhealthy to the point that you become insulin resistant and then develop type 2 diabetes. And a, of course, there's multiple factors making you metabolically unhealthy and insulin resistant, but the key contributor is uh, overconsumption of one macronutrient, which is carbohydrates, above and beyond your personal carbohydrate tolerance level. And if you maintain that uh, unfortunate eating pattern long enough, then you become insulin resistant. So that's a little bit about the, I guess, pathophysiology and what's behind the Verda approach. In terms of what we do at Verda, it's what we deliver or how we deliver is really a combination of two things. And I'll keep it brief brief at first. It's one, we've developed a virtual clinic. So think of it telemedicine uh, taken to the next level. So virtual clinic that delivers provider-led care. So we monitor our patients remotely multiple times a day continuously. And then our providers and other care team members plus enabled by technology uh, deliver care, whether that's de-prescribing medications or problem solved with the patient. So one part of Verda is this virtual clinic model, and we call it delivering continuous remote care. And then the second part is highly individualized nutrition treatments to reverse the underlying cause of type 2 diabetes, which again, as I mentioned, is insulin resistance. And yes, we, we use nutrition to achieve those outcomes. And the common core of these individualized protocols is carbohydrate restriction. But of course, there's, there's a lot, of, lot more detail behind it. But that's how we do it. Yeah. And so if someone has type 2 diabetes pretty much anywhere in the country or the world, they can access your care. And I think of it as almost like a virtual diabetologist and their team, right? It's you know the health coaches and the dietitian and the provider of care. And you get all that essentially a virtual clinic. 
And what parameters are being measured remotely? What are you following? What data are you following on, on the patients that utilize Verda? Yeah, absolutely. Mainly what we monitor goes into two groups. One is before we start to provide a patient relationship, we do run pretty comprehensive metabolic lab. Um, and for that, we use outsourced partners. So this is a comprehensive metabolic health panel. But that's only a couple of times a year. Um, and then secondly is probably what you were asking is, what do we monitor on a more continuous basis? Uh, that little bit depends on what are the issues that the patient is dealing with. But for the most part, we measure obviously blood glucose because that's important to show, demonstrate the progress as well as well as to be able to make e-prescription decisions around hypoglycemic drugs. So blood glucose is one. We also measure, measure blood ketones, which is a wonderful proxy for carbohydrate restriction and how well it's working. Um, we also measure blood pressure, especially for those patients who are on hypertensive drugs. And then we measure a number of, I guess you could call more subjective markers about well-being, hunger, craving, mood, and that sort of things. And then there's a pretty high volume of asynchronous communication between the patient and our care team. So practically speaking, that's, you could think of it as like texting back and forth. So in that text stream, there's, of course, all kinds of nuance that we get from our patients. So that's the kind of data stream that comes in. And then we use machines for software to read everything that comes in and then um, try to make the best decision based on the data that's coming in. So many things to say about that. But the first question that comes to my mind is, has the current COVID-19 pandemic changed the way that you're delivering healthcare or are you delivering healthcare pretty much the way you did before? I'm curious about that. The answer is is both. <laughs> yes and no. Uh, what's fortunate for Verda and the way Verda was set up uh, initially, particularly in this COVID-19 pandemic, is that all our care is delivered virtually and, and remotely. So this kind of care delivery model is obviously perfect for an environment where people don't want to or shouldn't leave their homes and drive around and touch people and so forth. So in that respect, it hasn't really changed much. Um, and our patients, obviously, you can imagine how appreciative they are when they are staying at home and this pandemic is going around and they can actually receive world-class care at home. And I should also add, and maybe we'll talk about this later, the outcomes if you have COVID-19 and type 2 diabetes are so much worse than if you don't have type 2 diabetes. So there's all the more reasons why our patients are delighted to be able to access uh, type 2 diabetes-related care without leaving their homes. So in some sense, uh, hasn't changed. What has changed is we've tried to eliminate all the need for our patients to really leave their home unless necessary. So one example of that is for this metabolic health panel that usually required going to a lab, we've uh, given an option for home-based labs or mailing labs and so forth. So that's one example of what we've done. Secondly, obviously, since we use nutrition as a means to uh, reverse this metabolic health condition, insulin resistance, people may not have access to shopping or the food or some day at home versus you know, at office or work or travel. So there's been a lot of individualization adjustments to our care protocols uh, to be able to address the changed environment. And then also I would say, you know, we are not a 
mental health clinic per se, but there's a lot of behavioral health issues that we have to address with nearly all of our patients. So you can imagine that there's a new new variety of things that we have to address when people are suddenly stuck at home. So in some ways we've changed, some ways not, and in some ways we were perfectly prepared for this unfortunate world where you really can't touch anyone and you still need to receive care. I want to pick up on a couple of things you mentioned. The last thing you said about being perfectly prepared, that's what came to mind when you first started describing your approach, the fact that it's fully virtual. So while the rest of the world in healthcare had to make this rapid tumultuous shift to virtual and and again, I would say very, very basic virtual. Most providers and groups really switched to telephone calls. You were connected omni-channel to your patients. And uh, as you said, they were already used to, and you were already used to this continuous communication, whether it was with the provider or the dietitian or the health coach and collecting all this data. So you were already there. And I think if I were a patient with diabetes in your clinic versus in a normal primary care clinic, I would feel a lot safer being with you as we enter this pandemic, and also the connectivity. And so you are actually already there, and I would say in a much more sophisticated way than where we are trying to get to. And by we, I mean the rest of healthcare. Kind of curious about your thought about that. The other issue, as you point out, was you were so much better prepared to keep your patients at home and keep them well controlled, because you were already set up to do that. That is not a small point by any means, because we know, and you know for sure, that individuals with diabetes or other chronic diseases are at increased risk for worse outcomes if they do get infected. So as you were pointing out, you had that already set up. I'm assuming if people needed food or deliveries, you were somehow participating and pivoting your model to accommodate that. And I'd like to hear if that's what you were doing. And then finally, knowing what I know about Verta, you spend so much time talking about the psychosocial aspects of having a chronic condition because it affects so much of our life in terms of exercise and activity and eating and relationships. And I just have to imagine that with this COVID pandemic, there was an increase in anxiety, uh, an increase in depression. And so I'm curious as how you address that. If you could address the fact of being ahead of the game, being connected, you know, being able to serve the uh, social determinants of health, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. And first, let me just repeat that one more time that COVID-19 is bad in terms of uh, expected outcomes. But COVID-19 combined with type 2 diabetes is exceptionally bad. And then COVID-19 combined with poorly controlled type 2 diabetes is really, really bad. Some of the peer-reviewed data that just came out from, from China, I think they looked at about 8,000 patients. The mortality rate for poorly controlled type 2 diabetes was more than 10%. So if you got COVID-19, you had more than 10% chance of dying you had poorly controlled type 2 diabetes. And then, you know, about four or five times actually uh, better chances of surviving if you just had type 2 diabetes, which was still much worse than if you didn't have. So it's unfortunately a really, really bad combination. In terms of Verda's ability to, to serve patients in this situation, again, the foundation that we had and have, it was perfectly suited in terms of fully virtual care. And then the second thing that we had already experienced, which is really important for particularly, I guess, technology-based entrants to realize, there is no such thing as one size fits all if you want to deliver amazing outcomes. Like you have to really take every patient 
as as an individual. And fortunately, we had a, we had learned that along the way. You know, we work with uh, dozens of soon nearly 100 different employers from blue collars, white collars, from you know U.S. Foods to Comcast to Cisco to all kinds of employers. So we had seen different kind of populations. We also work with three different Native American tribes. And you can imagine that those can be very different populations from, say, working with Nielsen of company, uh, where people working from, from call centers. And now we also work with the Veterans Administration on a nationwide basis. So we kind of had had training wheels in realizing that the care that we deliver, particularly as it touches nutrition, has to be highly individualized. And whether it's socioeconomics or location or geography or religion or whatever, um, if you throw in nearly one size fits all approach, 90% of the people will run to the hills and leave you and disappear. Um, so we had already learned the fact that every single individual, literally N equals one, there's a high degree of individualization needed. Um, and of course, the software and technology allows us to do that at scale while still involving our providers and other care team members. And so we were able to apply a lot of those lessons now because of or during the COVID-19. It just added yet another variable into the mix. Like if you couldn't leave your home and you could only order food online or suddenly you had to cook at home versus getting meals, meals at the office. So. In some ways, we just applied the lessons that we had used before around virtual care and individualizing to do the N equals one. Let's say I am a patient of Virta's. I'm connected to you. I'm communicating. Now COVID-19 comes. I've got questions. I'm uncertain. I'm home, maybe alone. So I'm dealing with all that on top of this serious chronic condition, even a baseline that affects everything, right? And is affected by everything. So if I get depressed or anxious, it changes my sugars. If, you know, I'm, I'm not exercising as much because I'm stuck inside, I start to, you know, potentially also change, you know, sugar. And so all this is intermixed. And so how would you customize care for me? How would I reach out to you? How would you reach out to me and have that sort of communication and relationship and, and dealing with some of those psychosocial issues, especially during this time? Yeah, well, Number one, we have real people behind the screen. So you, you can always reach out to, or we will proactively reach out to our patients if any of the biomarkers are starting to go off track. So that's sort of the number one thing that there's a real person who cares about you, knows you, our provider or our coach who's there to help you. And sometimes that's like 80% of the solution. And we interact on average more than three times a day with our patients, particularly in the first few months, and then it goes to roughly around one time a day. So that's the number one thing. The second thing is already over the course of regular, so to speak, Verda care and treatment, we built resilience and tools and skills to be resilient and learn to live with what we might call uh, lapses or relapses when it comes to the nutrition protocol that we have. And that's, it's kind of like you, you want to build the skills before there is a crisis. So, so that's sort of the second thing. And this is around don't beat yourself. You know, there's a little bit of a mindfulness, realizing that we all make mistakes. We are not perfect and sort of behavior health type of skills. Um, and again, we teach these skills to all of our patients, regardless of COVID-19. But those kinds of skills become extremely helpful 
obviously during the time like this. And then there's the ter third element, which is things might get even worse. And this is sort of a case by case support by our coaches and providers. We don't, uh, and it's usually very, it takes a lot of time and it's, it's very one-on-one -on -one approach. So we don't say that, hey, you know, here's this one size, so one size fits all video, meditation and video, watch this and everything's going to be fine. It doesn't really, <laughs> really help. So the beauty of a tech-enabled service where we have real providers behind is we can then really take the time to help and support our patients. Um, and then maybe as a last note, I would also mention that the the business model, the economic model that we use is purely outcome-based. So as a provider and care provider, we don't worry, worry about is there a billing code that we can submit this extensive research or interaction with this patient. Uh, we can pay for results, so we do whatever it takes to help our patients succeed. And of course, sometimes we spend so much time that it's not even profitable, but on average, obviously, we have, we have a model that works. But I think that's also helpful that it's not the episodic care. We have to schedule a time and deal with it. And if we can't deal with it, then we just have to stop it. Like we can keep going and help the patient as much as we can. Mm -hmm. So you would become a, a signal uh, that something might be going awry from a psychosocial perspective, could be some of the biomarkers you're checking daily, but also I could reach out to you in various ways to my health coach or my provider uh, as well, because I have that kind of relationship. Do you use sort of screens for depression or anxiety? How is that being checked, if at all? Yeah, we, we do have screens. And just to be very clear, we are, as a provider, we are very explicit about our scope of practice so we're not a virtual mental health clinic for example so we do refer patients to experts if they if their issue is is clearly outside of the scope of our practice so we don't we don't try to pretend that we do something that we don't uh, so we have screeners for that kind of things where we are very clear what we take care of and what we don't I appreciate that and respect that. The payment for outcomes, you know, for the vast majority of healthcare delivery, it's based on fee-for-service. And I think the pandemic has shown how vulnerable that is. And yet you haven't had to deal with that. And so could you say something about that? Yeah, well, uh, there's, uh, so generally we only get paid for results that are tied to clinically validated outcomes or economically validated outcomes. And really the, the genesis of that was we said, we have a bold promise, which is that we can reverse type two diabetes or put type two diabetes into remission and consequently eliminate the need for hypoglycemic drugs, even things like insulin or, or GLP-1s. Let's put all our money where our mouth is because this lofty promise of literally delivering outcomes that almost nobody had seen in type 2 diabetes care for decades, it sounds too good to be true. So we wanted to make it clear for healthcare payers, employers, health plans, government that this promise is not just words. We'll, we'll put our money where our mouth is. So that was one reason why we did that. And, and the second reason was I also wanted to make sure that from a business model perspective, I align and we align everyone's interest with that of the patient. Um, it, it's easy to imagine that, well, we don't have to imagine, we just look at the <laughs> three plus trillion US healthcare costs. If you get paid for doing something, 
at some point, somebody is going to be doing more of that something, <laughs> whether it's good or bad. Uh, th that's the power of, of money and economics. So we wanted to make sure that whatever we do, it's aligned in the best interest of the patient. And the best in interest of the patient is better outcomes, uh, better glycemic control, eliminating the need for hypoglycemic drugs, and delivering improvements in other metabolic health markers. So starting from a patient to Verda employees to our customers, everyone's interests are aligned, which is better outcomes and lower cost. And it's kind of a beautiful feeling to operate in that kind of system where even if you only wanted to make more money, you could only achieve it by <laughs> delivering more amazing outcomes for our patients and members. So those were some of the reasons. And then obviously you need to be a little bit of a like, little bit flexible how that's contractually agreed upon depending on the entity that you work with whether it's an employer or a very sophisticated health plan with all kinds of risk uh, expertise um, but the main idea is only pay for outcomes and frankly shouldn't that be how much of the healthcare runs i would agree and you know, I do wonder if that's one of the lessons that we should learn from this because, you know, I think the the vulnerability and fragility of FIFA service has been demonstrated in spades uh, during this pandemic. And, you know, I think what we've seen is organizations like yours that get paid for outcomes haven't suffered in the same way because you're going for the outcomes and so you're going to continue to get paid for those outcomes regardless of how you deliver them. You don't have to worry, you know, can I drop a code for virtual or can I drop a code for a call? there is no CPT code for caring. I think your point is really well taken. I completely agree. I hope that is a lesson that's not lost on healthcare leaders across the country and policymakers uh, from this. And any more thought about the payment before I ask the next question? Yeah, well, there's a hospital very close to the university where I, I went uh, 2003, 2004, 2005 in Northern California. And I think they had received $100 million of, of something like that from the government not too long ago. And it's a wonderful academic hospital and you wonder, and highly profitable at that, I think. And you know, a lot of people came to me, my employees asking, how is that possible? They had to receive $100 million from the government. And I said, well, you know, just think about it. People just aren't going to do the $50,000 hip replacements or, or knee surgeries. And that's the fee-for-service medicine. So. I do think, especially in a capitalistic system, people will do what they get paid for. Uh, and yes, there's corporate practice in medicine, <laughs> so uh, providers are supposed to do, and mo for the most part, do what's best for the patient. But you know, if you're CEO of any kind of a not-for-profit or for-profit institution, you will be looking at how do we pay the bills. And if you pay the bills by churning more transactions, you are somebody is going to be churning more transactions. So I just cannot, I'm sort of repeating the same thing, but people will do what they get paid for. And we have to, and that's a systems issue. It's not an ethical issue, moral issue. It's, it's, a, it's a system level issue that has to be fixed. I do not see how we can improve a lot of things in healthcare unless we get out of that system level problem, fee for service. It's just not the way it should be. So that's a major, you know, it is the big, I call it the big butt in, in healthcare. You know, love to do this, but don't get paid for it. You know, if you were going to say, here's the lessons we should learn from this moment in time that COVID has taught us as, as sort of a, a catalyst for accelerating the change that was already needed, 
for exposing some of the problems. What other things would you say we should learn from this that moving forward we should change in healthcare or healthcare delivery? Uh, interesting. Well, I, I think uh, what COVID-19 forced almost all providers to do uh, has accelerated the arrival of future by five years, give or take. Um, and oftentimes, when you are forced to do something, even against your will, it will open up your eyes and some of the uh, expectations and obstacles that you imagined turn out not quite be true. So uh, I do think that just telemedicine and virtual care in general has leapfrogged five years, give or take both from the patient side as well as provider side. And all these ideas of, oh, it's going to be impossible. Well, my patients aren't, you know, uh, 20, 30-something professionals, so they aren't going to be ready for this. So I think a lot of people's eyes have opened, not just to the fact that, well, this is working quite fine, maybe even better. So, uh, and, and when you realize something and that feels so much better, uh, it's very unlikely that, 100% of the people will go 100% back. That's just not going to happen. So I think this uh, way of delivering care now, to some extent, is the new normal. And you see this everywhere. When you get groceries delivered to your house, uh, you know, most people aren't going to go back and be grocery shopping four hours every week or two hours every week. So a lot of these experiences will become the new normal, I would say. Then also the regulatory barriers that have been struck down to make it easier, whether that's eliminating the requirement to have providers licensed in every single state where they practice telemedicine, or even Medicare reimbursing uh, telemedicine visits with, at the same rate of, of in-person visits. It's extremely unlikely that those be rolled back to the previous normal. So I do think we just, I guess I would summarize it by saying we've just leapfrogged three to five years forward mm -hmm. in a month, yeah. in a month. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And this may sound self-serving to some extent, but um, if you look at the outcomes or the poor outcomes and what's driving them, I think People have already realized, and I, I hear this from our patients and our applicants who are about to become patients, the realization that a nation that is dangerously obese and chronically ill, obviously we've realized that's bad, but now that we have this virus traveling throughout the country and seeing that you have five, ten times higher probability of dying if, you have, if you're obese or you have poorly controlled type 2 diabetes, I do think that's, that will open up our eyes that we are so sick and we are sick because of conditions that are treatable or reversible or preventable. So I'm quite convinced that there will be a whole new set of urgency or sense of urgency that we have to do something about this. I'm, I'm hopeful that that's going to happen. I think that's such an important lesson and a point to make that one in two Americans has a, a chronic medical condition. And then when you look at the Medicare age, when you get over 65, it, it's over 80%, well over 80% uh, of Americans uh, over 65. And about half 
uh, patients, Medicare age patients, have two or more chronic conditions. So we've seen an explosion in chronic conditions over the past uh, few decades. And a lot of it, to your point and to the point of Verda, has to do with nutrition, with physical activity and, and other stressors. I think we in society, meaning here in America, in the U.S., we've neglected public health. And even the fact that we have a term, social determinants of health, it's almost like we're medicalizing public health and certain policies. So this is as simple things as if you don't have a home, you are probably going to be sicker and you will get sick. If you don't have access to even decent food, you're probably going to get sick. Uh, if you don't have access to transportation that gets you to healthcare food, if you simply don't have access to care, you're probably going to be sick. So the fact that we even have this term, social determinants of health, is to me, it's, it's, it's a sign that something has gone wrong in public health. And now we're talking about like food pharmacies, which for someone like me who grew up on a farm, literally eating from the field, it sounds, sounds a little crazy. It, it's food and everyone should have, uh, you know, the money and the access to real food to begin with. You don't have to medicalize food, but here we are. And uh, yeah, hopefully our eyes, eyes will open and we will do something about it. I've actually never heard it described that way, but you're absolutely right. We've you know, medicalized things that are social in nature, including food. Anything else in terms of how healthcare is going to be reframed? And I, and I love your phrase that it's really accelerated the arrival of the future by you know, at least five years or so. That makes a lot of sense to me, the leapfrogging, and hopefully other things will be accelerated, like you mentioned, in terms of the focus on chronic disease management and prevention. Any other thoughts about what lessons we should learn from this and you know, what hope you have for the future of healthcare in this country? Yeah, um, well, there's a lot of things that, you know, I'm an optimist, obviously, as, as an entrepreneur, I have to be an optimist. I, I take insurmountable tasks and challenges. So I, I'm, I'm definitely an optimist. And I think there's reason to be optimistic. Again, if I just list a few things, I'd say one, information sharing and the speed at which information has been shared by scientists, by clinicians has been remarkable. To some extent, you know, the, I, I see positivity, more positivity from using platforms like Twitter. I think there were a lot of uh, providers and scientists in Seattle uh, communicating with scientists from China when Seattle was one of the first hotspots in, in, in America, um, using uh, preprint servers to publish papers before they were peer reviewed. So, uh, you know, information sharing has happened in, in hours or days as opposed to the massive peer review cycles of waiting nine months for a paper to come out. It's just, especially at the time of crisis, that's just absolutely too slow. Of course, it's the flip side of you know, people with the most number of Twitter followers suddenly become science experts, although they shouldn't. But anyway, I'm, I'm optimistic about us globally learning new ways to sharing information and then discover new things faster uh, when needed, particularly at the time of crisis. And then a lot of those other things that I already mentioned, virtual care, people just realized that, yeah, it's, why not? In fact, it's in many ways better and the importance of, of health so that there's less of those disease states that you have to address. And so I, I see, I, I'm, I'm very optimistic, uh, although right now we're in the middle of, of a pandemic that frankly, my personal opinion is it's going to last much longer than people think. 
it's going to take a while before we have drugs to treat it. We, it's going to take a, even longer before we have uh, vaccines and probably as long before we have herd immunity. So this is, we're going to be battling this particular pandemic for for year plus plus to come. And I'm sure this is not the last one. I so admire your entrepreneurial positive spirit and perspective, especially since I know you're also a realist and very data-driven and fact-based and bottom line. So it makes me feel better that you're hopeful. Sammy, can't thank you enough. This is, it's so much fun and so inspiring and interesting to hear you talk. And I learn so much every time. So I just want to thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for your work. Oh, well, thank you. If you don't mind, I'd just like to sign off as I do each and every episode by concluding and thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or supporting those who are taking care of patients in these times, especially I and we truly, truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. Friends and colleagues, please take care of yourselves. And again, please share this podcast with colleagues and friends as well. This is Zev Neuwirth. You've been listening to a limited series on how COVID-19 is reframing healthcare in America, part of the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. Until next time, be safe and be well.